our Gospels. But something we need to know before we get into it, I think it's one of these passages that we just kind of read every year. Palm Sunday comes up, we read, we hear about it. And sometimes we're so removed from the culture and what was happening at that time that we kind of miss how they were receiving this and how maybe they were interpreting this time, this, this entry of Jesus. And so we need to know a little bit about the political and spiritual climate at that time. So uh, they were passionately and zealously waiting for uh, the Messiah, the Christ, which means the anointed one. And, and many of us know this. What's maybe unknown is that at the time of Jesus in the first century Second Temple Judaism, they were so zealous and waiting, but they did not know if there was going to be one Messiah or two of them. And so there was a lot of talk. Is there going to be a prophet and a David? Or is he going to be one person? And this comes from uh, the story of Moses. And so if you know the story of Moses, he was a little Hebrew boy. Uh, Pharaoh, they were in captivity in Egypt. Pharaoh says, there's too many Hebrew people that are my slaves. We need to start taking out some of the newborn boys. And so to save him, his family sends him down the river in a little basket, if you know the story. And he gets adopted by Pharaoh's own household. And so he is risen up in the palace until he sees one day an Egyptian abusing one of the Hebrew people. He gets angry, murders the man, but he gets caught. And so he flees. And if you know the story, there's a burning bush talking to Moses. This is the Lord speaking to Moses through the burning bush. There's 10 plagues. Pharaoh let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, it's not happening. Even 10 plagues later, staff turning into snakes and all these radical miracles. And so God says, you know, for that time that you murdered off my boys, there's going to be justice paid. And this is what I want you to do, Hebrew people. I want you to take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, the best one you can find, and you're going to get ready for your journey. And so you're going to kill the lamb, and you're going to eat. You're going to be prepared for this. But at the same time, I want you to take the blood of this lamb and you're going to put it on the doorposts of your home. And as I pass by, if I see the blood of the lamb covering your home, I will spare you. I will save you. And those who do not have that, justice will be enacted for what had happened to my people. And so that happened. And because of the great loss of Egypt and even to Pharaoh's own home, he says, I never want to see you again. You people get out of my land. And there's more to that story. He chases them, the Red Sea and all this stuff. But finally, the people make it into the desert and start this journey with God in, in, in traveling in tents. And because of this, they enacted, they would enact the Passover every year. And this is the time that we find Jesus about to enter Jerusalem. But God made a promise to the people of Israel right after this. In Deuteronomy 18, he said this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses talking to the people from your fellow Israelites. And you must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see his great fire anymore, or we'll die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their fellow Israelites. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. And so what Moses did was not only act as the mouthpiece of God, but he was known as the prophet that led out the people from captivity into freedom. When they were under pagan rule 
and captivity and the burden of slavery and the beatings and everything else, he led them out into freedom. And they are once again under the rule of Rome, crying out, Lord, when are you going to send that next Moses for us? And you might know they are also waiting for someone who was like David, a man who was an anointed king whose own heart was after God, and he had the ability to lead the nation in such a way that they too wanted to follow after God's own heart. And to David, he promised this, when your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so early on in the gospel, you see the Pharisees come up to John the Baptist. He's crazy, hair on his back, eating bugs out in the desert, and they come up to him and they say, are you Elijah? We're waiting for someone like an Elijah. He says, no, I'm not. He says, are you the prophet? Not a prophet. Are you the prophet? Are you the Moses that is supposed to lead us out of this captivity? He says, no, that's not me. At other times, the people would cry out, if you remember the blind man. When Jesus is passing by, he hears that Jesus is coming by, and he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. I am hearing about the stories of what you are doing to restore people's lives and restore worship back to God. You must be the one that we've been waiting for. Son of David, have mercy on me. So this is who they're waiting for. Is it going to be one person? Is it going to be two? It's time. They've been waiting. They've been counting down since Daniel. He said 70 weeks times seven, and I'm going to send someone. They do the math around 490 years. This is the time. It's now or never, God. Are you going to show up? And so now it's Passover. They're literally about to celebrate the time when God released them from captivity, from slavery. And where is Jesus at the moment? He's hiding. He's been hiding. If you remember, just two weeks ago when Ben was teaching, uh, he had this conversation with the Pharisees. And he says, he comes to the point where he says, I and the Father are one. And they pick up stones to kill him. It's like, how dare you make yourself to be with God? And then they want to arrest him. And so he flees. And it says that he goes to the Bethany on the other side of Jordan. We don't even know where that is today. <laughs> he goes to where John the Baptist basically was, out in the middle of nowhere to hide. So he's hiding. He knows and everybody knows that there is a death warrant out for him. An arrest and we're going to kill him. And so he's hiding, but then he gets word. And we saw this last week. Your friend Lazarus is sick. He says, I have to go. And the disciples say, Rabbi, you can't go. They literally were just trying to kill you. What are you thinking? Your friend's sick. Just let him sleep. No, he's dead, actually. And this is for you that I must go. And if you remember the response of Thomas, he says, then let us go that we'll die with him. I mean, you can feel the heaviness, the weight that these disciples have. They have for three years followed their rabbi. They believe that he is something, that he has to be the Messiah, the Christ. Peter has confessed it publicly. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And yet at the same time, they're looking at the enemies and the intense pursuit to kill Jesus. And they say, well, it was a good run. If we go, I guess we'll die with you. And so he goes to Lazarus and as you know, he was dead for four days. And we saw this last week. 
and he raises them from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he raises Lazarus. And if you're dead for four days, you're two miles from Jerusalem, there's a crowd there, you're a friend of Jesus, so people know you. If you're one of Jesus's friends, whether you're famous or not, people know you. And Jesus traveled there, and so word gets out. Word gets out about his miracle, and people are even more fervently following after him, but others are scared. And they go tell the Pharisees, and they even more now want to kill him and silence Lazarus. How can this be happening? And this is what they're thinking. All this talk about Messiah, all this talk of the Christ means one thing. To be the Messiah means to be the anointed king. And there is one thing that Rome will not allow, and that is another king trying to take that place. There were many times that other messiahs, other insurrectionists rose up with groups of people and they were stomped out brutally. Thousands would be murdered at a time and women raped and children sold off to slavery so that Rome would say, don't ever try that again. And so the Pharisees have this coming on. Jesus claimed to be divine and his followers are radically saying that he is the Messiah. And here we are entering Jerusalem at the most filled, most zealous moment of Messiah hope. And what does Jesus do? I love this. He just rides in in public on a donkey, right? fulfilling scripture, but at the same time, showing he is always in control. He's always in control. And it's interesting because the people get word. I don't know if he was already in the city or maybe someone saw him and they ran out to town, but no one's expecting him right now. People know that the leaders want him dead. And that's why I think he shows up and people have to go and tell the Pharisees, Jesus has shown up. And they're probably thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to be a worse time. We just need to get through Passover. No one talking about kings. No one talking about a Messiah. No one needs to die. Let's just get through Passover. And here Jesus just strides right in on a donkey, east side of town. I love this because he has more than once shown that he is always in control. He has said multiple times, no one takes my life. I lay it down and I will pick it back up again. No one takes my life. In just a few chapters, he's going to be in the garden. And if you know this story, this is one of my favorite stories. I don't know why. But he's in the garden with his disciples and a group of Roman guards, soldiers come up to him. And you can imagine armor, swords, everything. And he sees them coming. He says, who are you looking for? He says, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And they just fall to the ground. Like this, like the lion of Judah roared in that moment and they just fell. And I imagine they're a little woozy. They get back up. He says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth? What is going on? I am he. It was like in that moment, like you don't take my life. You're not in control. Now I will give you my life. You can now take me. Jesus was never tricked. He was never trapped. He was the chess player that planned this all out. And just to show you don't take my life, I'm giving it to you. I am he. Now sit down. So the people respond when they see him. The flocking crowds run to him at the city gates or at the entrance there on the east side of Jerusalem. And they start throwing down palm branches. And we know in the other gospel, gospels, they're even their own coats and clothes. And what is this about? 
In 2 Kings 9, 13, there's another story where Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha, his predecessor, uh, pulls aside a young prophet boy. He says, look, Jezebel, that evil queen that's been killing off our people and especially the prophets, it's time to take care of her. You need to run to the leader Jehu and he's going to be king. I'm going to open these doors and you book it as fast as you can and you get there. And he does that. The man opens the door and he rushes to Jehu. When he gets there, he opens the door and Jehu's there with his man. And he says, uh, what are you here for? What are you looking for? He says, I need to talk to you alone. Shuts the door. Take off your clothes. Oil onto your head. You know, you are king now. He didn't do the sign of the cross. You are king. And he opens the door. And I imagine Jehu's men's like, bro, what's up? I'm king. I'm king. And his men who are just friends with him, followers, throw themselves to the ground and throw their coats down before his feet for him to walk on. Why? Because he had little princess toes that he wanted to get dirty? No, because that was the proper response to show all of your body and yourself, your posture and all that you have to lay it before the incoming king to welcome him in. And that's what they did. And this is what the, the people are doing here in Jerusalem. And it's interesting because when we think, if you know anything about this man, Jehu, he was a particularly violent king. And we can't miss it that he is the one who got rid of Jezebel, who was killing God's people. And you think, is not Christ riding into Jerusalem to do the same exact thing at this moment? We see also that they cut down branches to lay before Jesus and John, actually, in Revelation 7, 9, it's interesting. He says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John here portrays the triumphal entry into Jerusalem as a picture of what happens in the heavenly Jerusalem with multitudes, with palm branches, crying and shouts out to the Lord, receiving her king, the people. The palm branches, though, also call back to the Feast of Booths. And this is where we left off in the story of Passover. As they left Egypt, they traveled in tents with the presence of God abiding with them. And this entire time, as God miraculously provided with bread, with restoring their clothes daily. And so they had this time where they'd all traveled to Jerusalem, like the man camp out. They'd all built, put tents out and they would camp together remembering that time. Do you remember when God took care of our people? And they celebrated by living it out once again crying out, God, when are you going to do it again? When will you do it once more? So at the triumphal entry, here we are, and Christ is being celebrated as the one who would bring his people out of the captivity, a spiritual Egypt, if you will. And he's being welcomed by the people with the sign of palm branches, shouts of rejoicing, and the feast of booths was initiated anew. And get this, as we've already hinted, who are these people that are calling out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord? They are a radically conquered people at this moment. Right? 
If you don't know the story, the general Pompey, a Roman general, had conquered Jerusalem 63 years before the birth of Jesus. Jesus had this time about 33. So basically 100 years have they lived under Roman occupation. If you think about it, that means just about there's probably no person in that crowd who was not born under Roman rule. They have celebrated year after year Passover, the Feast of Booths, and all these other holidays that commemorated and remembered the time where God freed them from captivity, all while never having tasted true freedom themselves. And here they are crying out, we need this to happen again. You could imagine being them, celebrating this particularly painful history during this week of Passover. Knowing that God had a purpose for them, he freed them for a purpose, and at the same time, they're under the rule of Roman occupation. So when they cry out, Hosanna, which means save, save now, they're crying that out, not just as a song of praise, but it is a cry from their hearts. I would imagine that there are men and women and children who are saying Hosanna with tears in their eyes, wondering, is this truly the Moses, the King David that we've been waiting for? We want to receive her. Do something, God. Sometimes this frustration, this intense zeal for the Messiah was so intense that it would boil over into multiple insurrections. And so what would happen is that every year on Passover, the governor Pontius Pilate would ride from his palace home in Caesarea by the sea, ride down the coast and into Jerusalem just for Passover. So when we read the story of Pontius Pilate wiping his hands as we say the Apostles' Creed, he didn't live in Jerusalem. Like that wasn't his home. He was there because if people get out of hand, out of line during Passover, which it tended to happen at this time specifically, as they're crying out for freedom from captivity once more, he was there with a full military escort to show them who's boss. And what's interesting as you think about this, as Jesus rode in from the east two miles in, in, in Bethany into Jerusalem on the east on a donkey, you possibly have at the same very moment Pontius Pilate riding on a war horse with a full escort into the west. Right? Two different radically opposed kingdoms. One who would force and stomp out his enemies, pouring the streets with their blood. That was Rome's way. Crucifixion, humiliation. The other would conquer his enemies through his own blood. One would rule with an iron fist as a representation and government, governor of Rome. The other with grace and mercy as the prince of peace. So we can kind of understand at this moment the frenzy and, and, and the zeal as they come throwing everything before Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. That these words come from Psalm 118. And if you know anything about Psalm 118, every year that the Jews would travel to Jerusalem, they would have these psalms that they would sing as they ascended to the city on a hill. 
They're called the Psalms of Ascension, and this was one of them. And this was one that was particularly filled with this messianic hope that, God, you are one day again going to release us. And I just want to read just a few different lines so that you can understand. I think of this, I don't know if this is what it really was, but I think of this almost like if you remember the time of slavery in the United States and, and Harriet Tubman and those who were operating the Underground Railroad, I don't know if you know this, they had code words that they would use. They would have code words if this is a safe person, are we getting to Canada? They would, call, they would sing songs talking about heading to heaven. That meant heading to Canada. Uh, Moses was actually Harriet Tubman. You know, Moses is coming. It was this language of lead us to freedom from captivity. In Psalm 18, 118, I don't know if this is what it was, but I'm pretty sure Rome did not know Psalm 118. And here are some of the lines that come from this. It says, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord's on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? It is better to take refuge in the Lord than the trust in princes. All nations surround me. This is verse 10. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me. Surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among the thorns. Verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. He has become my salvation. I shall not die, but I shall live. Can you imagine Lazarus singing this song as he's going up? I shall not die. I did once, but I'm living. And recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely. They're living in discipline right now. But he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And ironically, not even realizing them, that in three days they'll fulfill, verse 22, the stone, Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice in it. And verse 27, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I will give thanks to you. I will give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the song they're singing. And they start singing out to Jesus. The very words that they were singing up to Jerusalem. And here comes Jesus. And they think, it's time. It is time. Our Moses, our David, we pray it's you. He has arrived. What's ironic about this is that they don't even know what they're doing at this moment. They don't actually realize what is happening at this moment. Not even his disciples do. Because we hear, even with the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, that the, the, the coming king will come on, on the colt of a donkey. It says right after that, the disciples still don't understand what's happening. I would imagine they walked in terrified, looking over the shoulder, cloaks over the head, like, oh my goodness, the Pharisees are going to see us. And by the time everybody's throwing branches down, their cloaks are off, and they're just celebrating and having a time like, this is it. Jesus is going to bring back the kingdom of Israel today. And they didn't even get what was happening at this moment. And we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus tells us the very thing that he doesn't want them to. Could you imagine? Like if people actually understood what was happening, the cross probably would never have happened. We shouldn't be surprised. When the Greeks, just after this, come up, they say, we want to see Jesus. He says, my hour's come. 
My hour's come. The Son of Man must be lifted up, and when he is, then he will draw all men to him. After the Son of Man is lifted up, and John says this is to refer to the death he was going to die on the cross. When that would happen, then he would draw Jews and Greeks. Then he would draw Pharisees and Sadducees. Then he would draw rich and poor and marginalized and Romans and everyone else. But until that moment, his hour is happening and he cannot let go of the mission the Father has given him in this passion. So here we are, the entrance of Jesus. And this is the moment that marks it all. This is the no turning back, the passion has begun. Israel has received her king, whether it's the way they imagined it or not. And he is going to be that bound up festal sacrifice that they sing. He's gonna be rejected just as they were singing moments before as they walked up to Jerusalem. And as they are crying out, waiting for that prophet like Moses, he's going to fulfill it. It's just not in the way they were expecting. He is the Moses who leads his people from captivity. He did it on the cross, and he does it today. The enemy of God, death, the true enemy of God, death, is going to be conquered. As he storms the gates of death, releasing its captivities, and giving life as he is the resurrection. If you believe in me, you don't die. You pass from life to life. He's starting it now. He is the David that comes in as king and rules with grace and mercy and justice, who has an eternal throne that no one can take and he doesn't share it with anybody. And he says in verse 44, what is our response? What is our proper response to receive someone like Jesus? He says, believe in me and you'll know the Father. See me, you see him, and you will not remain in darkness. Receive him as king and receive eternal life. When we have Jesus as king as our Passover lamb with his blood on the doorposts of the cross, and he as our banner, when death comes, it has no choice but to pass over. And that's what the Passover meant death could only pass over and we are spared. So our response, an adequate response for the conquering God who is king and destroyed sin, death, and Satan is to give him the spot he is due in our lives. Right? To give him center stage and say, you are the voice piece of God. Speak into my life. Speak into my family. Speak into my children. Speak into my marriage into my job, into our schools. Lead, govern with peace and justice as you do. Let's pray. Father, our desire is that we would receive you as king that we in our hearts would lay down palm branches, lay down our coats, lay down anything and everything that stands as a wall between us and you, that we would be able to receive you as king and that you would govern us with love and justice and mercy. It is so easy to follow after other false kings in our lives. It's easy to be distracted. And we know that in your mercy, you hear our prayers and we cry out for you to be king here. 
to be our prophet that leads us from captivity to life, to full, abundant, and eternal life. We thank you that 2,000 years ago, you would take off the immense glory and walk into humanity, embracing and feeling and empathizing with all the pains and hurts that we experience so that we would have a high priest, a king, a prophet that knows where we're at, that has experienced what we've experienced so that you truly could leave us, lead us into freedom. We give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.